Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. And it's not just expelled American journalists who have made these allegations. A former FSB officer named Alexander Litvinenko escaped to London in 2000 and wrote a couple of books on the subject. His strong, well-backed allegations, coming as they did from a former agent, definitely made the Putin regime look bad. Plus, he was on the verge of testifying in a Spanish court about the Russian government's high-level ties to organized crime. Which is why Putin and company probably breathed a sigh of relief when the healthy 44-year-old suddenly fell sick and died. And? What? It sounds like you're leaving something out there. Why did this healthy man suddenly fall ill? Oh, it's the sort of thing that could happen to anyone. See, apparently he was offered a cup of tea in a meeting with some Russian guys, and somehow he managed to ingest some polonium-210, which is a radioactive substance that subsequent investigations determined to an absolute certainty could only have come from one place in Russia, specifically the town of Sardov. Jesus. Yeah, Putin's a go-along-get-along dude. Gessen's book is actually an excellent resource for understanding the man, and we recommend it wholeheartedly. It offers insights into Putin that we haven't heard elsewhere. For example, his weird insistence that his heavily stage-managed biography must promote stories from his childhood and youth in which his most thuggish tendencies are emphasized. Apparently being seen as a brute is a big part of his popularity. Gessen also covers some interesting details about a confusing aspect of Putin's nature— he would ostentatiously refuse all sorts of small bribes that are kind of seen as par for the course in Russian political life, but then subsequently, when he had a chance to steal something huge or unique, he just couldn't seem to stop himself, no matter how blatant the theft. You may recall the bizarre but true Super Bowl ring scandal. Tonight, Putin's aides are denying he stole a diamond-encrusted Super Bowl ring from New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. The two met in 2005. Both sides agree that Kraft showed him his Super Bowl bling, reportedly worth over $25,000. They also agree that Putin left with it. Kraft issued a statement at the time saying he gave Putin the ring as a gift, a sign of friendship with the Russian people. But on Thursday, Kraft revealed what he says is the real truth. He says he handed Putin the ring to look at and remembers the former KGB spy saying, I could kill someone with this ring. Then, according to Kraft, the Russian president pocketed it, all 4.94 carats, all 124 diamonds. 
Kraft says he called it a gift only after pressure from the White House. And we could chalk this up to misunderstanding. Except, as Gessen demonstrates, it fits in neatly with the man's high-level kleptomania. Their book is an incredible read about a strange, twisted, power-and-money-hungry weirdo, which we highly recommend. Now that we've established the character of the guy at the top of the government in Russia, we want to take a closer look at the culture that he and his sycophants and enablers have shaped over the past 23 years. Yes, we know he wasn't technically the president for four of those years, but that just amounts to some musical chairs where he handpicked his successor, Medvedev, who then appointed Putin prime minister. Medvedev, the new president, deferred to his prime minister and retired after one term in 2012, replaced by one Vladimir Putin. So the point stands. Putin has dominated Russian politics for more than two decades. What has that done to the country? For answers, we return to our interview with Ilya Yablokov. One of the first things that struck us about his excellent book was the almost schizophrenic attitude that the Putin regime has toward the Soviet period. That is, they seem both to revere it and to see it as the result of interference by anti-Russian Western schemers. The revolution of 1991 was supposed to show the way for the Russian society to prosper under the democratic rules of the game. However, the collapse of the Soviet Union was also about the collapse of the national identity, also the collapse of the economic system, major systems that had to be rebuilt by the Russian establishment. They only managed to build one. Russian establishment managed to build a pretty good working market economy, which became less market economy by the 20th year of Putin's rule in the Kremlin, the two nation and political systems were absolutely shattered. They were destroyed. And nobody replaced them. Nobody rebuilt them. Neither Yeltsin nor Putin, neither Medvedev have created a properly working political system. As a result, Russia was kind of shaking from being democratic or trying to mimic the democratic procedures. Not anymore. But at the same time, they tried to create a majority of people that would support the current regime. And here, let's go back to 1917. The collapse of the empire that was gradually replaced by the belief in the Soviets, in the socialist and the communist values. The Bolsheviks created some sort of new identity by getting rid of the previous identity of imperial Russia. Eventually, they collapsed the state first, but then they rebuilt it, especially under Joseph Stalin. When it comes to Vladimir Putin, especially in 2010, on the one hand, Putin says, we don't need the revolution. We don't want our country to be destroyed by yet another revolution. That's what we read between the lines. We need to destroy all those system of political checks and balances and the principles of the democratic state because they can let us rule the country forever. And we should not be really worried about transparency and fairness that eventually put Vladimir Putin in the mousetrap. If you destroy principles of the democratic state, and if you say that we don't need a revolution, you create this revolution yourself because you unleash those powers that will come and destroy you once your system makes a fatal mistake. 
if we look at 2017, the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution, of the Russian Revolution, we're going to see zero celebrations of the Russian, of the Bolshevik Revolution, because for the regime, everything that has the word revolution is actually a threat, because revolution makes the state weak, and that's the biggest fear of the so-called Russian patriot. That's why this notion of revolution of 1917 that helped build the Soviet Union, that is one of the biggest paradoxes. Hating the Russian Revolution because the regime and those intellectuals loyal to the regime also hate it. But in many ways, they do not realize that their own identity is in many ways shaped by the 1917 revolution. They like some bits of the Soviet Union that talk about the greatness, but at the same time, they cut out all the elements of the Soviet past that might question how they see the Russian Empire as a great state that only did good things to people, Ukrainians included. So Putin has been unable to create a new national identity and thus has to hearken back to the relative glories of the USSR when Russia was at the center of global power politics. But at the same time, he has to resist anything to do with glorification of the Russian Revolution that brought the Bolsheviks to power, because the concept of revolution might give people ideas. Exactly. And who helps Putin walk this narrow rhetorical line? His cadre of pro-government intellectuals, who are more than willing to come up with justifications for everything from anti-LGBTQ legislation to the invasion of Ukraine. As Yablokov's book points out, Russia had, until recent years, stood in stark contrast to the United States in terms of its elites and their relationship to conspiracy theorizing. In Russia, it's elites doing the conspiracy spreading, while in the U.S., conspiracies have traditionally been more of a grassroots phenomenon that elites would work to tamp down or deride. Of course, since the book was published, a lot has changed. My book was written in 2017, five years ago. At that time, I stated the difference between Russia and the U.S. in the way conspiratorial propaganda is spread is in the United States, conspiracy theories grow from the grassroots level. QAnon is one of those examples. In Russia, most of the mainstream conspiracy theories are actually top-down. They come from the level of the elites and spread around the population. When Donald Trump came to power, I said, well, actually, that's quite interesting. It's actually the first time when such a crazy fan of conspiracy theories is at the head of the United States. At the same time, the coronavirus case in Russia shows that conspiracy theories can quickly grow from the grassroots level and get hold of millions of minds thanks to social networks. And they can actually challenge the elites. Russia's government attempt to introduce these QR codes, mass vaccination against COVID. Millions of people started writing on social networks, started pushing all sorts of conspiracy theories about the coronavirus, about accusing the Kremlin to, in attempt to kill the Russians by coronavirus jabs. So as a result, the Kremlin really backed down. And so in that case, the elites are not relevant anymore. So in that case, Russia becomes so similar to Germany, to France, and to the United States. 
because this important role of intellectual elite that can shape the conspiratorial argument and cunningly put it through, it doesn't work anymore. No matter how strong Putin is and the media and the propaganda, Russians have this inherent tradition of mistrust to the government in the things that concern their own very real, very personal problems. And this is the limitation of propaganda. Despite their no longer having a monopoly on the production of conspiracy theories, the Russian elites do still spawn their fair share. And much of Yablokov's book is dedicated to exploring the different flavors of conspiracy that have waxed and waned there over the past couple of decades. Much of the conspiracy production has, of course, been aimed at supporting the regime and turning the population against its designated enemies. One of the first groups targeted was non-governmental organizations, or NGOs. These groups, typically run by liberal-leaning Russians with outside, i.e. Western, funding, were originally welcomed in the immediate post-Soviet period, but as the government turned increasingly authoritarian, they became an easy target against which to focus Russians' free-floating anxieties. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it was very helpful to have foreign companies and foreign funds. In many ways, NGOs helped taking the responsibilities of the state in those areas where the state was incapable of actually resolving these problems. As a result, NGOs became important actors, promoting this idea that well, actually, people can have grassroots activities together, you know, kind of horizontal networks. When Putin decided to run for another term, the first target of Kremlin's propaganda became the NGO responsible for human rights. When Putin properly came to power in 2012, the Kremlin introduced a number of measures against the so-called foreign agents. The NGOs in 2010s were perceived as the first line of defense of the Russian civil society because they were able to provide resources and intelligence and support in defending the people from the state. If you manage to break those bonds between people, no one is going to stand against you. And that's why conspiracy theories first in the 2000s were used to muddy the waters around how they are funded, what are their real objectives in Russia. And then in 2010s, when the Kremlin was focused on making sure that, you know, we are going to rule this country forever, they just simply killed all the independent NGOs. And conspiracy theories help to justify, because when you say that the NGO is conspiring against you, is plotting against you, if NGO supports rights of LGBTQ people, then this is the NGO that actually works against us, because we Russians have always been against this. So conspiracy theories came really handy in destroying this first line of defense of Russian civil society. Oh, 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 oh,
As the demonization of NGOs demonstrates, the power of Russia's conspiracist elite lies in their ability to generate enemies against which Putin's government can be cast as the Russia-defending heroes. As this process has continued, the good and evil have become more broadly defined. Even back in 2007, some of these narratives had already totally collapsed the distinction between what Putin wants and what Russia is. Which again sounds just a little too much like the attitudes of some QAnon trust the plan Trump fans for our comfort. Consider this excerpt from the preface to a pro-Putin screed written way back in 2007 by one of the many lickspittle pro-Kremlin journalists who put together Vragi Putina, or Putin's enemies. Putin's regime carries out policies which respond to the aspirations of the nation to restore Russian power, which correspond to our political traditions and strengthen patriotism. It is not important why a person rejects Putin's regime and becomes its enemy. It is important that, in the current situation, this person automatically becomes an enemy of the state and the nation, and enemy of our motherland. That's some straight-up Kim Jong-un, Stalin, Pol Pot, der Führer shit right there. Which is why we asked the professor to elaborate on the point. It's a handbook of any authoritarian leader. Put the leader and the so-called majority, the invented majority, into one group, and then put everyone who sort of is against what is happening into this cast of enemies. In 2007, it was the key moment when the Kremlin wanted to make sure that Putin stays in power, even though he will have to go. Remember, that's the period we discussed earlier, where Putin traded out for Medvedev so he could pretend he cared about the constitution of Russia. I remember how carefully spread those fears of conspiracy were and how the Kremlin tried to scare as many people as possible who did not like Putin, who wanted to vote against him, that repressions will follow. Do not even try to challenge us. That was the message. The majority is with us. The majority is loyal to Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin is an embodiment of the Russian society. Because this is the bond that authoritarian and totalitarian propagandists usually make. It's a very populist trick, but it worked in Russia. It's not all scary, though. Some of these conspiracies are simply ridiculous. For example, there's the Dulles Plan, supposedly a Soviet-era U.S. National Security Council directive detailing our Cold War strategy for destroying the USSR by corrupting its people and morals. But of course, it's a forgery. Sounds a whole lot like our old enemy, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, doesn't it? I thought so too, but Professor Yablokov told us that's giving the Dulles Plan too much credit. It's a really short document that he describes as primitive in comparison to the Protocols. Borenstein concurs, noting, The protocol's forgers at least had the decency to steal a written source in a foreign language. But whoever first came up with the Dulles plan lifted it from one of the most popular spy novels and films of the Brezhnev era, Anatoly Ivanov's The Eternal Call. The Dulles plan is a creation of the early post-Soviet national patriots. In Russia, they were called the Brown Forces. In many ways, they are the forefathers of today's pretty fascist anti-Western speakers and writers. This Dalit plan started to be quoted and published and referred to in various press publications and then in book publications. So gradually, the Dalit plan turned into common evidence that the West is against us 
The Dallas plan states, for instance, we are going to destroy all their moral foundation. We're going to promote rock bands, which is going to destroy the mentality of their kids. We are going to destroy their belief in their rulers. So basically, whatever aspect of post-Soviet life you take, if you look at it from the conservative point of view, you will certainly see, well, yes, there's quite a lot of rock music, which is not necessarily loyal to the state. It criticizes the state as rock music usually does, you're going to see lots of the things that the Dallas plan says. But as a conspiracy theory, it usually exaggerates, it twists the reality, it only gives half of facts, another half is, is hidden somewhere. So the Dallas plan, in that sense, became popular because it was reiterated by so many offers so many times that by the end of the 1990s and mid-2000s, the Dallas plan was like, well, of course, there's a Dallas plan. You know, like everyone is talking about that. Everyone is writing about that. Interestingly, Borenstein's book picks up the story from here, noting the impressive vitality of the Dallas plan as a pre-internet meme. And we're quoting him because this is fucking gold. From back in the days when memes had to walk 20 miles in the freezing cold before finding a gullible host to infect. Perfect. The Dulles plan was the first, probably dating back to the immediate post-Soviet period in the 90s. But he also calls out the popularity of the Harvard Project, which author Gregory Klimov claims to have worked on with the CIA until he had a change of heart. We're going to quote Borenstein directly for this next part because he has a real way with dismissive descriptions of conspiracy theories. If the Harvard Project were a living organism, we would say that it mated with its better-known cousin, the Dulles Plan, and gave birth to the Houston Project, but not before picking up a nasty hereditary bug known as the Golden Billion. And we were all set to explain to you what each of these plans means and how they are interlinked when we found out we didn't have to bother. Turns out there's a blockbuster film on the subject scheduled for summer 2023. Some big names are attached. And you have the script? Nah, don't need it. You know movie trailers these days. They give away the whole plot. Oh, Jesus, you're going to do another skit, aren't you? In a world where Russia is the last hope for humanity. Wait, Russia? In this world, the last hope of humanity is Russia? U.S. fantasies that you're going to save us all are ridiculous enough, but Russia? Come on, Dana, cut me some slack. Also, yes, that's what all of these various planned conspiracies are centered on. The core Russian messianic view of itself as the last hope of humanity, combined with a certainty that the West is trying to destroy it for precisely that reason. May I proceed? I'm just going to go put my fingers in my ears and say, la 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 la, until it's over. La 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 Deal. Okay, everyone. Places. And action. In a world where Russia is the last hope for humanity. Evil running dog Secretary of State John Foster Dulles unveils to the heads of America's aggressive imperialist military his project for long-term anti-capitalist negation. Hey, that spells plan. Gentlemen, as we enter the new decade of the 1960s, we also enter the next phase of our evil plot against the Soviet Union. The world's only hope to escape the grinding heel of our mighty, exploitative, capitalist war machine. We will cause the downfall of the most obstreperous nation on Earth. We will tear their country apart as we support and promote those so-called artists 
We will impose and imprint onto human consciousness the cult of sex, violence, sadism, treachery, impertinence and impudence, lies and deception, drunkenness and drug addiction. It will all blossom. We will bet on youth. We will corrupt, pervert, and degrade it. We will make them cynics, Bulgarians, and cosmopolitans. That's how we'll do it. That's, uh, great, sir. But this plan sounds a little light on the plan part. Could we talk specifics? No, no specifics. This one meandering, poorly thought out paragraph I mostly copied from a Russian spy novel is everything you need. And just as you recover from the gripping drama of the USSR's valiant struggle against an evil paragraph, we take you to the 1980s, where a famous running dog bourgeois university unveils its secret three-volume plan to crush the vanguard of the global revolution. My fellow corrupt, debased Yankee academics, Thank you for joining me at the unveiling of the culmination of our years of research. This three-volume plan for dismantling the Soviet state. Gentlemen, I give you the Harvard plan. Will you be passing out copies to all of us? We will not, as the impressive tomes behind me are actually blank. It turns out the plan is really short. Instead, we will secretly be leaking a two-sentence summary of each volume to retired Russian General Konstantin Pavlovich Petrov via our contacts in Soviet intelligence. I'm sorry, you're what? That's right. We're so confident in our plan that we didn't actually write the books, and yet we will provide the basic outlines of the books we would have written to a Russian general Confident he won't be able to stop us, even after he promotes them on a futuristic computer network we're calling the Internet in the first decade of the 21st century. Hold the phone, why on earth? Because he agreed not to publish them until long after the first two phases have been implemented, of course. So first, we'll explain our plan to install a puppet of our own evil capitalist regime as the premier of the Soviet Union, who will implement a restructuring, or perestroika, that will critically weaken the enemy under the guise of addressing long-standing institutional, economic, and human rights issues. We'll probably also give him a big red birthmark on his forehead. Dastardly! But how will you actually accomplish- Next, Volume 2. We'll install a hapless drunk when the USSR collapses, who will liquidate the party, the Red Army, hell, boys, while we're at it, the whole international socialist movement. Why not? Sky's the limit. That's the reform phase. What's this culmination in Volume 3? Well now, partner, that's where I come in. Yeah! Our friends from the energy sector have arrived. Glad you could make it. Please, explain your coup de grace to these gentlemen. Well, I don't know about no cougars or coup grass or whatever smarty pants East Coast shit you said, buddy, but I do know one thing. Russia's got a whole mess of oil, and we need it. So since those Harvard boys turned over the third volume to us, the evil petrochemical industrial complex, we've started work on a long-term Houston plan to get one of our own Texas oil men elected as president of these here United States by the early 21st century. 
He's gonna help us break Russia up into little mini-states so that we can manhandle them and take all their oil. But all that skullduggery is just a cover for our real final plan. Thank you, Houston. I'll take it from here. Is that the golden billion? I thought she was just a myth. Gentlemen and ladies, please sit while I show you the beautiful intricacy of our end game. As we all know, the world is on the brink of an ecological catastrophe. By the 2030s, only a few years from now. Wait, didn't that scene start in the early 80s? We estimate that almost all the nations of the world will become uninhabitable due to global warming, among the many causes we've deliberately engineered. Leaving what nation? The one remaining livable area of the globe? Well, if we're talking warming, then probably a variety of colder climates like Canada or Norway are helped. Argentina will probably be better off than That's others. Right. The only remaining habitable zone of humanity just happens to be Russia. Exactly as we planned. I would not have bet on that, honestly. And that is where I will bring the one billion richest, most evil, debauched, western anti-Christian degenerates to sully the still fertile lands of Russia, displacing and murdering the innocent, scattered, helpless Russian people. And then we shall laugh and spit in the face of the Russian Orthodox God. <laughs> Who will stop this plan? Find out this July 4th, only in theaters. Rated S for stupid. Oh, it's finished. Oh, thank God. Yeah, really feel like we stuck that landing. In any case, as you've probably guessed, the gist of what you just heard is really how Russian conspiracists see these various made-up plans coming together. The literal breakup of the country into small, weak states to be overrun when the ecological apocalypse happens. And then the richest one billion capitalists will take over Russia, which will indeed be the only habitable area left on Earth. And damn it, Putin's not going to let that happen. No shit.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.